G'day, it's Phil Edwards, Vision CEO here, with a quick invitation to become part of this amazing beacon of hope called Vision. Together we can put our love into action to help people of all kinds build or rebuild their lives on the truth of God. Please consider the part you can play during our upcoming Visionathon appeal, remembering that it's your support that makes Vision possible, including this podcast. Life, culture and current events from a biblical perspective. 2020 with Neil Johnson on Vision. You know, there are challenging times and that so many things are changing faster than we can all adequately process. Well, let's turn our attention today to something that might be concerning for every single Christian believer. In the UK, the Church of England has been asked to respond to requests from clergy to use gender-neutral pronouns for God. A certain woke element of the church might think this sounds like progress, but we might ask if this would be misgendering God. Well, a conversation today just ahead. Dr. Mark Jury, he's a pastor and academic, a scholar in linguistics and theology. He writes on the connection between faith and culture. He's the founding director of the Institute for Spiritual Awareness. Back with us today, Mark Jury. Welcome back to 2020. Great to be with you, Neil. Mark, how does this sit in the usual conversation about keeping up-to-date and contemporary? Because we want to keep contemporary, but contemporary is pushing some limits here. Yes, I, there is pressure to um, to live in a in a less gendered world where there's more freedom about gender. And one of the great challenges, I think, uh, for that trend is that the Bible speaks about God as male. And and for some, uh, this is dis- distressing. And they, they prefer to try and talk about God in gender-neutral ways. So um, God is then no longer referred to as Father. You don't want to refer to Jesus so much as the Son of God. Uh, you try and um, avoid, um, in a sense, giving a label of maleness to God. So that this has been a request now. And, um, I mean, the Church of England is moving in a, you mentioned, woke direction, and, and it's quite possible that they'll uh, empower that shift. So it's, it's, it, that is concerning. Um, it's an interesting question, you know. There are some languages that don't even have a distinction between male and female, like Indonesian. Um, you, 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 the, in fact, there is no word for son in Indonesia. Uh, they refer to Jesus as the child of God. But um, but that's not what the Bible gave us. The Bible gave us um, Jesus as the son of God and and Jesus speaks about um, his father. And, and I think there's a lot of meaning to that. So I think I'm quite concerned that, that the, um, the meaning of of the image of God as Father will be lost, and that will be damaging for for faith, really. So, yeah, so I'm, I'm concerned about this, that there could be, the baby would be thrown out with the bathwater, that there'd be damage done in this desire to be politically correct. Mark, you're an Anglican minister, and Anglican churches, even here in Australia, have been moving towards using inclusive language and I know you say for decades now, but perhaps the intention has never been to misgender God, but actually to include 
uh, people, uh, whether male or female, and so there doesn't seem to be some sort of uh, inequality there. Any thoughts around that move that's been going on for a long time? Yes, that's been happening since the 70s. So when the Australian Hymn Book was produced in 1977, um, they went through a lot of the hymns and, and got rid of gendered expressions. So John Bunyan's hymn, He Who Would, he who would Valiant Be, um, was changed to Who Would True Valor See. <laughs> um, and actually, they did a good job, I think, at that time. But they, they didn't get rid of God as Father or Jesus as the Son of God. Um, so those, those, those movements for inclusion was, was not to make the believers in the pew think that it, the, the archetypal Christian was the male, you know, so it's dealing with that, there's distinctions between people, but it wasn't um, kind of reworking the Trinity or reworking the language we use from God. It's a much more serious step. Um, and uh, I mean, I'm kind of troubled about it because um, I think God has given us language to use about himself. There's this idea in our culture that people should be able to choose their own pronouns, that it's a a kind of an incredible insult to choose a pronoun, use a pronoun that someone hasn't chosen for themselves. These days, many academics will write their, and many people will write their preferred pronouns down as part of their uh, signature to their emails and messages. Um, but I think what the risk is with this is that we're misgendering God, like we're using terms for God that he himself has not given us. And and that takes us down the path, like, do we think God is actually real? Has he spoken? Uh, is is God someone who has something to say to us about how we should speak about him? Or is he just um, a voiceless, a thing rather than a person? If God's a person, then surely we should listen to what he's said about himself. But if he's not a person, then oh, we can call him whatever we like. But So I think there's a really deep issue about how we think about God. And how we ought to be concerned here because when there are those clergy who might be saying our references to God in church need to be to she or they or perhaps mother alongside father or just parents, you're saying that this is somewhere you would be very, very cautious treading those uh, those directions. Look, there are images in the Bible... <coughs> which use feminine metaphors for God. Um, so wisdom, an attribute of God, a personification of God in a way, is is personified as female in the book of Proverbs. I don't think I have any problem with using feminine metaphors for God. Um, and that's, that's found in the Bible in a number of different ways. And in fact, the orthodox view has always been that God is neither male nor female, you know, that God is not gendered in that sense. And um, I think you'd probably make the case that the Son of God is gendered only insofar as he became human. Um, that in, in the Bible says that both male and female are made in the image of God. So God actually images, or we image both genders are reflecting God's identity. So there's no, uh, there's no suggestion that God is actually male or actually female. That's, that's not the issue. Um, the thing I'm really concerned about is that Jesus speaks about God as Father a lot, and and he communicates some really important things about God in that way. And uh, basically, that God is the Creator, that He made us, um, that He loves us, and those th that idea is tied in with the idea of God as Father. That God is the is the is the source or origin of our existence, which is a sort of an idea of fatherhood as well. That 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 the source of a of a of a 
of a conception is that the male plays a, ro a particular role in that. And I think that that metaphor Jesus picks up and he speaks about um, God as our creator, God is good and God wanting to do good for all people. And that we, this actually offers a positive view of what it means to say that God is father. It's not a poisoned view. It's a, it's a redemptive way of thinking about God. So, uh, yeah, I think, I think it'd be really sad to lose that. Like, because if you if you throw out the fatherhood of God, you're really saying no to all the the messages that Jesus gave, where he he says, "Call God Father," and this is how we should understand our relationship with God. I mean, for some people, the term "father" has become poisoned and compromised. It, it sort of reflects patriarchy and abuse, and but but Jesus gives us a different way of thinking about God, which I think is really positive, and um, I think we. As followers of Jesus, we should be his disciples and use the language that he's given us to use, which is to call God Father. If we take away Jesus' image of the patriarchy of God, uh, what is it then that has a man uh, role modeling his life on? Uh, there might be a real challenge if you change God to she and take away the he. Uh, that might be a real challenge for a lot of men, wouldn't it be, Mark? Yes, but the problem with that argument is that that sort of implies that women are left out in the cold, that, the, you know, the men have God to be their father and that's good for them. But all the women have in, in, in kind of imaging God is um, is they, they can't connect with God in that way, So, I, in the way the man does. So I, I think that's not a great argument to use. Um, uh, I, I, I think... The, the shift, the abandonment of the idea of God as father is um, does reflect a kind of a shame or a rejection of male identity. That's true. But um, but I think we, we need to to see it in a different way. I, I think um, it is a fair enough comment that often the church has um, emphasized patriarchy, that is the rule of men over women uh, and and there's been damage done there. There's genuine. I mean, it's interesting in, in Genesis 3, one of the curses of the fall is that women, men would rule over women. And um, so there's damage there that we need to be aware of. But that's that doesn't mean that we should abandon the language that Jesus has given us to talk about our father and to have a relationship with God. The other thing that's important is that in the biblical understanding, God is actually neither male nor female, whatever language you might use, like father for God. Um, and for very good reason, because in, in, in ancient times, many religious beliefs saw God as, as a sexed entity. Gods were, they had male or female sex, and, and they actually would have children, and, and they had sexual characteristics. <laughs> so one of the challenges with kind of redoing this gender language is that you can end up having um, a view of mother God who is actually not just mother, but actually a sexual identity. And and um, the Bible has always been really opposed to that, that way of thinking about gods and deities. So um, that's, I think that's one of the dangers of this regendering of God, that we, we, we lose the, the understanding that God is actually neither male nor female in reality, that God transcends that human distinction. How important is it to acknowledge Jesus? And as you've 
mentioned already, his relationship with God as his father, even the number of times that we might see in our English language Bibles, uh, like something like 170 times Jesus references God as father. Uh, wait, we will put on the words that Jesus is, in this sense, reported to have used um, above our thoughts of making change because we think he should have said something. Any thoughts here? Yeah, I think we have to remain faithful to the principle that God has spoken and God has spoken through Christ. And the language that he's given us to speak about himself is, is, is a gift to us. Yes, it is embedded in a culture. Um, that's true, but it, it it reflects universal truths, and the universal truth that Jesus was sharing with us when he calls God his Father was that God is a Creator, God is good, and God loves us and cares for us. It's a very positive view of what a father is, um, and I think we that's not something we should turn away from. It, we we shouldn't be distracted by the abuses of fatherhood in our culture or by the abuses of patriarchy. We shouldn't um, kind of work backwards from human sin and say, oh, we won't talk about God as father anymore because there are bad fathers in the world. That's um, that's actually a complete rejection of Jesus, I think. It's a rejection of his testimony to us. We need to use the language for God that God himself has given to us. And that's part of believing that God has spoken, that God is personal and God is real. Um, you should use the terms for people that, in general, that they, um, you know, the names that they like to have. And that's a normal politeness that you call people according to the words that they, they share with you. Um, and I think that's a, a good principle as long as, you, you know, there isn't a lie. And, and I think we should, we should use the language for God that God has given us in Scripture. If God has spoken, then we should treat him as a personal um is someone we have a relationship with and, and speak about him accordingly. If God is impersonal and we can make him into whatever we want, then why are we believing? Like, if God is not personal, then the Bible is not true and, and we shouldn't be going down this track, faith track at all. So um, I think it's important to remain true to the vision of God that the Bible has shared with us and to embrace that wholeheartedly. And I know that you say we ought to let God's revelation speak to us and uh, God chooses his own pronouns. Let's come back and continue this conversation and talk about letting God choose his own pronouns. The Reverend Dr. Mark Jury is our guest and we're back with more in just a short while. We're back and talking about pronouns and God. Our special guest, the Reverend Dr. Mark Jury, who's a pastor and academic, a scholar in linguistics and theology. And that's important for the conversation we are having today. You can connect with Mark Jury at his website, markjury, D-U-R-I-E dot com. Mark, we mentioned just a short while ago, if God has revealed himself in a certain way, does that give us any right to misgender him by changing those pronouns? How do you make sense of the thought that God has said this and that's something we need to hold tight to? I think it's a deep principle that our worship and our prayer and our relationship with God needs to be shaped by the language of the Bible, that we relate to God as God reveals God's self to us in, in, in Scripture. Um, and that 
that is challenging on many levels. You've got the fact that God is judged, that there's the wrath of God, there's also the love of God, there's God's faithfulness, there's there's many different things that we need to think about when we're thinking about God. Um, but we ultimately, God is who he has revealed himself to us to be. That's a, a foundational principle of, of, the, of the scriptures. And part of that is that he's He's revealed a kind of default language in referring to himself, which is a, the, the masculine pronouns. Um, in the Hebrew language, the masculine pronoun is what we call an unmarked or default form. It's it's it, it's not an indication that God is actually has is a masculine figure or, or you know male sex, but but it's just a sort of default normal form that you'd use um, for non-gendered thing as well. I mean, God uses plural pronouns for himself sometimes in the Hebrew, but it doesn't actually mean that he's a plurality in that sense. Um, and God uses he for himself. So I think we should use it where a language has that distinction between male and female. Um, so I think it's it's a, this is a fundamental principle that, that um, God should be worshipped and, and honoured uh, in the way that he has revealed himself to us. Um, and that, that applies at many levels, but also in terms of the, the pronouns we use. How do we feel as Christians around the terminology that goes right back to the beginning in the book of Genesis? You've got Adam and Eve and, uh, you know, male, female, created in the image and likeness of God. Uh, The distinction is there from very early on, isn't it? Yes, it's 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 interesting. Some people would say, isn't it a problem that God makes Adam and he's male? You know, he's the first. But actually... The, the early, the first chapter of Genesis, and then again later, says that God made Adam, but then it says he made them male and female. And what's interesting is the word Adam in Hebrew, although it's a masculine gender, it actually means a person. It, it's not, it can be used not just to refer to men, but to men and women. Um and it's it's not the it's not the distinctive contrasted term. So there's a ish is the word for male, an isha for woman, um, and that that's the contrast between men and women. But Adam is is a, is a separate category. It's actually a generic term that happens to be male in its grammatical gender, but it refers to human beings. It's a bit like anthropos in Greek, which is grammatically male, but it means person. It doesn't mean a, a, a male male human being. Um, so actually, Adam contains with it, an, I think, an inclusion of both men and women, and it's 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 kind of hard to explain to, to explain the linguistics of it, but but I think that's definitely the case. And so um, so it says, you know, that God created Adam; He created Ish and Isha, male and female. He created them in the image of God. So the word Adam, in a way, captures both. Um, both the male maleness and the and the femaleness of human beings. Um, it's one of the problems I think is sometimes culture can take the scriptures and um, and actually lose some of the nuances. Uh, one of the interesting ones is where where it says that Eve was made as a as a companion for Adam. Uh, the word that's used in Hebrew is very strong. It's the word that's used for allies in war. So it's actually quite a powerful word to use. Uh, for a woman as a companion of, um, of of Adam, and we sometimes lose that in translations. Um, I, I, I think that there's a lot 
of freedom actually to be found in the Bible, <laughs> in the language of the Bible and the way it speaks about men and women. But um, but the response to the, the misrepresentations and misunderstandings shouldn't be to throw out uh, the Bible or to remake God in our in our own image, in our own kind of degendered image of today, but to be faithful to the language that he's given us to use. So you've got the male-female divides. You've got some other uh, symbolic titles too in the scriptures and titles like king and queen and the connection there to Jesus, the son of God, uh, as the king of kings and the lord of lords. How do you talk about those sorts of titles too? Because they are gendered titles too, aren't they? Yes, it's interesting that... um God is never referred to as a queen in the in the Old Testament. I think that's because the term queen in relation to deities was associated with um, fertility goddesses. You know, these little statues that show images with big breasts and wombs and, you know, full bellies and so on. These were um, images of deities that were not just female, but they were they had sexual characteristics. And um, the term uh, king used for God is really, um, it's actually more neutral, I think, than, than the word queen would have been um, because of that, that background of, of deities that actually were sexual beings. And it's very clear in the Bible that God is not a sexual being in that sense. God does not. Uh, have sex. He's not, he doesn't have sexual characteristics. It's one of the reasons why in Hebrew tradition you didn't allow images of God because once you do an image of a human a human image, there's going to be some sort of sexual differentiation and that's not possible with God because God is neither male nor female. And I think the idea of king is really an ideal of ruler. It's it's. I don't think it's it's meant to signal maleness so much as sovereignty. And it's the in that culture, it's the default way of signalling that. It's not a um, it's not a, a strong statement that this is a male god with male sexual characteristics. It's just the default way of talking about rule, and 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 so and so. So, I think we should still be singing that the Christ is King and that God, the Father God is King, but not because we think of God as male at all, but because. It's a, it's a way of expressing and reflecting the sovereignty of God. And um, it's a neutral way, I think, the most neutral way of reflecting the sovereignty of God. So a default way of talking about God being ruler and uh, interesting to talk about male-female aspects being a sexualization of God, which uh, we could be at risk of doing. Uh, but going the other way, the pendulum swinging all the way to let's call God they them, uh, that depersonalizes God altogether, doesn't it? What sort of signal does a depersonalizing of God send to a people that he's come to save? Yeah, one of the, the profound messages of the Bible is that God is not a something but a someone. God is personal. Um, and it, it's really hard to overstate that. Uh, it is such a strong message all through the scriptures that God is a personal God, has personal relationship with us. God speaks to us. God enters into relationship with covenantal God. Once we start taking the liberty of re re-gendering God or degendering God or 
giving him the the labels or titles that we choose instead of the ones he's shared with us, then we begin to treat God something and not as a someone. It's an absolutely fundamental human category, the difference between something and someone. And it, it, the risk is by by relegating God, by turning God into our own creation um, according to what we want, we actually deeply are rejecting his agency, uh, his personhood. And that's I think that's a dead end. That's the end of Christianity. Like it's... It's if, if God is not personal, then the scripture is a lie. The whole thing is wrong. So um, I think that's, I find that really troubling that it's, um, that regendering or degendering God sends a signal that God doesn't agent, it doesn't have agency, that he's not a person, that he's not a someone, but it's just a something. And um, this actually, to me, it reflects part of the long rejection of God that's come since the enlightenment to reduce God to a kind of an idea um, instead of seeing God as personal and, having a real existence and a real interaction with people in the world today. Mark, no doubt we'll all be confronted somewhere along the track uh, with choices that we make around uh, these sorts of things because they will filter into our world, uh, even to the point of the fact that so many of us these days use our mobile device or a tablet to be able to access the Bible. Uh, it's very easy, isn't it, for someone to change some of those elements of the scriptures there and degender God. So I imagine that we're all going to need to take a little bit of care around uh, what sort of things we're exposed to or what sort of church that we're a part of supporting with our loyalty and with our money. Any thoughts here about how you approach these things when you're confronted with them? Yeah, I think you need to be careful what Bible translation you use. There are some that say that in, for example, in the Islamic context, you shouldn't refer to Jesus as the Son of God because that sends the wrong signal to Muslims um, because that's a rejected uh, idea in Islam. So you've got whole Bibles that don't refer to Jesus as the Son of God. And this is highly controversial in the mission field. Uh, but we need to be uh, aware of the ideology that shapes the translations that we use and to be thoughtful and careful about which translations we use because we're accessing the word of God that was written in, in, in Hebrew or Aramaic or, or Greek and choices are being made to add meaning and to subtract meaning when you translate. So you, you need to be thoughtful and careful about what, what translations you use. So absolutely, I think that's important. There's no doubt that there will be um, that this, 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 trend, this trend to get rid of gendered terms for God will find its way into Bible translations and, and has already and um, so, yeah, it's good to be aware of that. There's a battle over language. There was a battle going on over the language for God. And I think we should be as faithful to the scriptures as we can be. And is there something special in there for the Christian believer who wants to do something a little more deeply in some academic pursuit? Because sometimes we think of studying Hebrew or Greek or Aramaic as being something that, oh, we don't need to worry about that anymore. But uh, you're the expert in linguistics, and no doubt you'd be encouraging people to actually take on some of those hard subjects because those hard subjects actually have real meaning when it comes to people who want to change the way we even think about how we uh, might gender or misgender God. Yeah, I think the meanings of words are very important. And one of the things, if you're trapped in English, if English is your only world, you don't actually realise how much your cultural world, your emotional world is shaped by the language that you speak. 
Um, and there's something really wonderful about studying another language and being exposed to a different conceptual universe, <laughs> different way of, of understanding what it is to be human and, and the emotions that people experience. And, and to really grasp the biblical text, it's really helpful to be able to um, read it in the original languages. So, I mean, I think it's always been a part of theological education. It always will be. Uh, some find it more enjoyable than others, but it's it's very fruitful and and important uh, to be able to to get your hands into the original languages. And I mean, it's part of our cultural heritage. Someone made the case that, um, and I was convinced by it, that the words for love in most European languages are deeply influenced by the biblical New Testament understanding of agape, the love of God. And that our culture has actually been deeply imprinted with biblical categories in that way, um, and it's good to be good to be aware of that influence and to be able to trace it and to see how our culture has been shaped by by the language of the Bible. And Mark, given that this is is quite a complicated conversation we have been having, uh, if there's a takeaway. Uh, from the conversation today as we're talking about God and pronouns and uh, misgendering. Uh, what's your advice in a nutshell for those who are saying, what do I take away from a complicated conversation like this? Uh, I'm going through this challenge now. My church is debating these things. Uh, how should I see God and his pronouns? I think read the Gospels and see how Jesus refers to God. And think about what Jesus is trying to tell us when he speaks about God as Father. Ask, what does that mean, really? What is Jesus trying to tell us? And he says it again and again and again, like over and over again. He He's communicating about how he understands his relationship to God. And get, get, immerse yourself in that and think about what that, what that you know, you're just so used to reading Our Father in Heaven, Hallowed Be the Name. But have a look at the parables Jesus tells have a look at how he speaks about about God in those stories and in his language and 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 reflect deeply on what that actually means. What does it mean to call God Father according to Jesus Christ? And that's uh, I think that's the touchstone of this whole issue for me um, is to is to walk in Jesus' footsteps, to use the language that Jesus has given us, to be his disciple and not just to remake it all in our own in our own according to our own desires and needs. So let God choose his own pronouns, uh, God, our Heavenly Father. Uh, it's he, it's him. Uh, the Reverend Dr. Mark Jury. Mark, every time we talk, uh, I'm blown away by wonderful wisdom. So thank you so much. <laughs> Uh, for taking some time to share these thoughts with listeners today and for listeners to connect with you and to read blog articles that take you a little deeper into some of these just amazing topics that you can talk about. Let me point listeners to markjury.com. Mark Jury, spelled D-U-R-I-E dot com. The Reverend Dr. Mark Jury, pastor and academic. He writes on the connection between faith and culture, the founding director of the Institute for Spiritual Awareness. Mark, thanks so much for sharing these thoughts with us today on 2020. It's a pleasure, Neil. Thanks for taking time to listen to this audio on demand from Vision Christian Media. To find out more about us, go to vision.org.au.